Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Today we bring you two recent interviews, first with Robert Kuttner, the co-editor of the American Prospect. And this interview was done the day after Kuttner posted his conversation with White House Chief Strategist Steve Bannon, just as Bannon was being ousted, likely for his call to Kuttner. They discuss China and North Korea, and our second interview is with Bruce Cummings, University of Chicago historian who's a leading expert on Korea. Cummings brings us the needed historical perspective to help us understand North Korea's development of a nuclear deterrent. We'll bring his analysis on this edition of Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and we are delighted to have today Robert Kuttner, the editor of the American Prospect. I guess we'll call him from now on the man who took down Bannon, but he's also been recognized as one of our most incisive analysts of the world political economy and American politics. And given this long-established left-wing credentials and reputation, Bob Kuttner was surprised, maybe even stunned, to be contacted last Tuesday by none other than Steve Bannon to have a chat. And the count of that a chat is in an article that appeared on the American Prospect website. Steve Bannon, of course, is the central architect of Trump's electoral victory and was his chief strategist. But through thick and thin, he's been one of Trump's main political advisors and the central formulator of the so-called nationalist populist political perspective that helped Trump to victory and its main advocate in the administration ever since. And Bannon was offering his analysis to Robert Kuttner, on key issues like Trump's aggressive policy toward North Korea, the administration's approach to China and its position more generally on trade, as well as Trump's explosive approach to the uh, Nazi and white nationalist assembly in Charlottesville. So for this reason, and I'm sorry for the long introduction, but Robert Kuttner's article became an immediate sensation, and he's been regularly appearing in the mainstream media to speak about his talk with Bannon. And that's extraordinary enough, but as the listeners will by now know, that confab took on an entirely different aspect and has, in a real sense, taken on historic significance. And that's uh, because it became the catalyst for Donald Trump's firing of Steve Bannon. And there are those who would say he's been on the ropes for a long time, but nevertheless, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. So with all of that, Robert Kuttner, let's just begin from there. How do you understand the firing of Steve Bannon, and how does it feel to have been vaulted from a reporter with a scoop to an actor in contemporary history? <laughs> well, when he said all the incautious things that he did say, and did not take the trouble to put this off the record. I said to myself, this guy is on the ropes. So I guess I would say I was stunned but not surprised when the axe finally fell. Why would a guy like Steve Bannon reach out to a guy like me? (laughs) It's one part flawed judgment. It's one part grandiosity. Bannon's got this idea that nationalism is the way to get the right wing, the far right, into power. And for Bannon, nationalism is one part economic nationalism, taking a much harder line, for example, with China, and taking a much harder line with other countries and, you know, being protectionist, and three parts anti-immigrant, <laughs> turn the far right into shock troops for Trump. So I think Bannon, knowing that he was kind of on the ropes, is reaching out to possible allies, and he's got this grandiose idea that he's going to fashion a grand coalition of the right and the left 
to take a harder line on China and on trade generally. Well, that's a little bit much, maybe not totally crazy, but partially crazy, because you can just imagine after this conversation, even if he did uh, neglect to put it off the record, Bannon trotting over to the National Security Council and say, hey, I got some new allies. I got Bob Kuttner. This is not exactly going to impress other people in the Trump White House. <laughs> so I think it was a misjudgment on his part. And then, of course, the bigger misjudgment was to think that just because he and I happen to share some views on China, that I would look the other way at the fact that he's been the architect of uh, turning the whole far, far right fringe into shock troops for Donald Trump. And I would say, well, I can excuse that. He's on my side on China. I mean, you have to be delusional uh, to sort of forget who the American prospect is, who I am, and think that I'm that gullible. That's, I think, what startled me. And I think my takeaway was that, like a lot of people who are too full of themselves, who are vulnerable to hubris, the beginning of your downfall is when you make mistaken judgments. And that's what Bannon has been doing, and particularly in this incautious phone call. Just to add to that, there's an awful lot of speculation about what Bannon was thinking. Of course, only Bannon can really answer that. But I take it that you think that it was sincere in that respect, that he really did want to talk about these issues. It wasn't sort of like creating a pretext to get out of a situation that was already that he was being pushed out of. Well, he's been talking out of both sides of his mouth on this, and that's also characteristic. So when I wrote this up and posted it, about a half hour later, the phone rings, and it's the White House press secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, and she says, Mr. Ben is very upset. He thought you were on background. And I said, well, he never said so. And I said, furthermore, I have a recording of this, and he never said so. And so she shut up. And then the next day, he started putting out the line that he did it deliberately to divert attention from Charlottesville, which is also completely crazy because Charlottesville has only been building as the president doubles down on the kind of neo-Nazi white nationalist strategy. So, Trump, if you think about guys you knew back when who would say anything to get you into bed with them, (laughs) Trump is that kind of a guy, and so so is Bannon. It's, I'll say whatever I need to say, even if it contradicts what I said yesterday, (laughs) to make Bob Kuttner think I'm a good guy. This is really funny. And why he cares about what I think of him. So this is a guy who, you know, think of the term fragile male ego. This is a guy who, on the one hand, is very full of himself, and on the other hand, very insecure. And in that respect, he's reminiscent of Donald Trump. Mm. Okay, well, let me just tell the listeners, in case they don't know who Robert Kuttner is, uh, apart from the man who brought down Bannon, he's the co-founder and co-editor of the American Prospect. And the Prospect website, you know, was practically undone with, I guess, a half a million hits after it's this. about 650,000. Okay, yeah. it's growing every minute, but that is prospect.org. And Robert Kuttner is also a Brandeis University's professor, and he's written a string of books, the latest of which is Debtor's Prison, The Politics of Austerity versus possibility. So now let's go back, Bob Kuttner, to the the substance of the conversation, because the apparent trigger, which has a lot of interest in itself, and that's because Bannon essentially said that an American military strike on Korea can't work. So it's basically laughable to threaten it. And his point was that there's a million North Korean troops massed on the border between the two countries. So any American move would be met by a massive invasion of South Korea, which the U.S. wouldn't be able to stop. Not just an invasion, but 
an artillery strike using conventional weapons that would probably kill 10 million South Koreans. Okay. And he's right, he's right about that. And I think one of the reasons he called me was he thought that he and I had similar views on China and Korea and the fact that China is in no hurry to restrain North Korea because that the fact that North Korea is uh, rattling the nuclear saber gives China more leverage to get the United States to back off any kind of trade complaint because we need them to restrain North Korea. So, anyway, I had written that for Prospect and for Huffington Post, and that was the column that he read that prompted the phone call. And I was going to say, though, that it seems, as you just said, Bob Kuttner, that Bannon's basic position had really already been validated because Trump's bellicosity and imminent threat of war seems to have receded, if not totally disappeared. Isn't that the case? Well, see, Trump, if you look at his modus operandi for the past several months, he'll do something, and then it won't stick to the wall, and then it'll be, oh, never mind. That was yesterday. <laughs> right. So, you know, he makes this threat, and then his generals tell him, well, if you do that, we might have a thermonuclear war. And so it's, okay, that was yesterday. I'm not going to do that anymore. It's really bizarre. So in that respect, Ben is a somewhat clearer thinker than Trump, although that's a low bar. And I think that most people thought that was always the case. But let's go then to China, because that's what Bannon said the two issues interested him in your writing, and I guess intimating that you had agreement with him on that. But he said that Bannon hoped that Trump would see the overriding priority toward China, which would be to tear down China's mercantilist trade policy of protectionism and state intervention, as, and as he put it, to you, the economic war with China is everything, and we have to be maniacally focused on that. So can you explain a little bit why Bannon's views on Trump's policy toward Korea are about preventing the carrying out of the U.S. nationalist economic policy toward China? Well, Bannon believes, and I think he's right, that it is really the psychology of mutually assured destruction that is preventing North Korea from starting a nuclear war with us and wasting diplomatic leverage trying to get the Chinese to restrain North Korea misses the point. It's the logic of the situation that restrains North Korea, and China actually likes North Korea threatening us because then we need China and then we don't take a hard line against China. And it's all of a piece with his view of economic nationalism, political nationalism, anti-immigrant nationalism, white racist nationalism. That's how Bannon thinks you build a majority in this country. See, the other thing that was interesting is he thinks that's Trump's default position, but he's fearful of people like Gary Cohn, formerly of Goldman Sachs, or Steve Mnuchin, formerly of Goldman Sachs, who are globalist free market guys. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to outflank them, offset them by promoting economic nationalism, which is the opposite of what they want to do. And he, so he's got this fight inside the administration, no longer, but had this fight inside the administration, you know, to, to win over Trump. Now, there's one other thing I want to not forget to say. Mm -hmm. He's out of the White House, but he is not out of the Trump orbit because Trump is famous for picking up the phone in the middle of the night and calling his buddies. And in a sense, Bannon may be able to have more influence out than in because General Kelly can't control who Trump calls in the middle of the night. <laughs> and we also don't know what nefarious role Bannon is going to go back to with Breitbart 
or some other uh, media organization. So we haven't seen the last of this guy. That's clear. You've just said a whole bunch, and I guess the best part of it is what you just said last, uh, Robert Kuttner, that we haven't seen the last and that this may free him up to have an even bigger influence unmediated by other forces in the White House on uh, Donald Trump. And I was thinking, as you talked about the Goldman Sachs people, Bannon spent his time there as well, but you brought out the key difference, and that is uh, the difference between the globalists, the free traders, and the economic nationalists. So could this economic nationalist policy that they were putting forward actually be implemented? And I think another interesting aspect of it was that press conference that has now you know, dominated the news cycle for this entire week, as it should, yeah. that standing with Trump were all the people who were going to be part of the infrastructure rollout, and that, of course, didn't get mentioned, and that everybody standing next to Trump looked really squeamish as he as he uh, spewed out his... Right. Yeah, so go ahead, and let's talk first of all about reversing, I guess, this policy of neoliberal globalization, which has been the dominant one, you know, since the 90s. Yeah, I, don't, moved- I don't think, <laughs> even with Bannon in the White House, Trump was ever going to reverse that, because the corporate guys who he's in bed with, even if they're uncomfortable with his racism... They have too much influence. Mm. And secondly, his version of infrastructure was always BS. It was always sell off the public sector's crown jewels and do funny money tax credits and privatize infrastructure. And uh, corporations, middlemen, get to make a lot of a lot more money, and ratepayers and taxpayers end up paying for it when he's long gone. So, Not to mention crush the unions, right, within it? Sure. And so, you know, he was talking about selling off the great western dams that provide both the most environmentally friendly and the cheapest power in the country. So his version of infrastructure is complete garbage. And is this and Bannon, Bannon and or Trump, Bannon and Trump? No, it's, it, it's, Wall, it's Wall Street. Wall, okay. Wall Street. Wall Street gets to make a ton of money as the intermediary if you float bonds in the private sector, you privatize infrastructure investment. Mm-hmm. So... What's really interesting is what it will take to get these uh, private sector guys off the bus, and even more importantly, what it'll take to get elected Republicans off the bus. And we're starting to see this whole administration is looking shakier and shakier and shakier. There will be an end game. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know when that's going to be. I don't know how that's going to be, but it will be. So are you saying that this is the end of this discussion on infrastructure as well? Have we heard the last of it? Well, they may put something forward that's privatized infrastructure, but it's not the real infrastructure that this country needs. So with that, thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you so much for being with us, and congratulations. You've now made your mark in history. Well, we'll we'll see. Once again. Take care. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thank thank you so much. And I have been talking with Robert Kuttner, co-founder and co-editor of the American Prospect, professor at Brandeis University's Heller School, and for four years, the Washington Bureau Chief of Pacifica News. And his latest book is Debtor's Prison, The Politics of Austerity Versus Possibility. He writes everywhere, but you can find most of it at the American Prospect. And as we also said, he has now been thrown into the stage of history because he's the man that brought Bannon down. I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman, and this is Jacobin Radio. I'm very pleased to have Bruce Cummings with us. He teaches at the University of Chicago. 
He's the author of the Korean War and has several articles that you will probably want to look up. His latest article is A Murderous History of Korea, and that appears in the London Review of Books in May. And he has an op-ed that's going to be published by The Guardian in London, which right now has the title A Tale Told by an Idiot. Today we're going to analyze the dangerously escalating tensions between the United States and North Korea that's heightened by these early morning tweets from President Trump warning that the U.S. is locked and loaded. And should North Korea make any moves toward Guam? Well, that would be unwise. Bruce Cummings brings to us this crucial historical perspective that'll help us understand North Korea's development of a nuclear deterrent. And we should probably just say outright that the U.S. carpet bombed North Korea in the Korean War, and he calls Trump's callous and cavalier threats the most irresponsible thing that President Trump has ever said since becoming president, and that's really saying a lot. Well, with all that, Bruce Cummings, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Thank you, Susie. Trump has issued uh, one after another provocative warning of military action against North Korea, all within the space of about a week. And now, of course, he's saying that they're on the edge of military action. So how do you think that that's received there? And what do you think of these tweets? Well, I I think the North Korean leadership, which is not just Kim Jong-un, but a whole host of generals and, and elders who you know, are in their 70s and 80s. You see them standing with Kim Jong-un on on the platform in Pyongyang. Uh, These people went through the Korean War, which was for them a holocaust. Probably two million North Koreans died, and much of the dying came because of American bombing. The U.S. had control of the air basically for three years and leveled every North Korean city leveled them to a a degree greater than Japan and Germany's cities that were firebombed in World War II, according to official U.S. Air Force histories. Every North Korean knows this. Older North Koreans lost relatives during this bombing campaign. And so you're dealing with a, a wounded country, even though they constantly bluster and try to put on a very brave front, a, a really wounded country that went through a terrible trial And now President Trump, in his, as you said, or as I said, callous and cavalier way, Mm. is taunting them, taunting them like a a bully and talking about the United States being a hyperpower, uh, not just a superpower. And, you know, here's a country that may be belligerent and very difficult and hard to understand, but it is just a small country. And so I think what President Trump is doing is just utterly reprehensible. It is the worst thing he's done since he became president. But, of course, as you indicated, that's you know, quite a long list of, right. of misbehavior on his part. But this, as you just said, Bruce Cummings, is really dangerous because it's nuclear bluster. It's not just off-the-cuff remarks that he made, say, at Mar-a-Lago or having dinner. This time it's far more serious. But it's backed, and I'm really glad that you began with some of the other people in power, because the United States seems to caricature North Korea as a kind of family dynasty, which it is, but there's other people behind this dynasty. And you mentioned, I think it's in your article in the London Review of Books, that some of them, you know, are veterans or or their children are veterans from that war and that this has been going on for a long time. And of course, it, it just raises the question, 
why? I mean, I'm glad you bring in this sense of history, but is this sort of like, okay, we're going to defeat a vanquished foe, a small country that's uh, hopelessly behind the times, and if it didn't have this deterrent, would have, you know, would be of little significance in the world? Well, well Trump is, I, I actually think he's a megalomaniac. I think he's mentally ill. Uh, he sees himself uh, at the center of everything and cannot even take uh, taunts from a minor power like North Korea. So that's just very dangerous. The New York Times quoted an anonymous uh, White House staffer yesterday or the day before saying that uh, Trump thinks his advisors uh, don't really understand Kim Jong-un the way that Trump does. And Trump thinks that Kim Jong-un likes to push people around. And so he's going to show him that here's somebody that can't be pushed around. It's a kind of grade school or barroom mentality. And as you said, you know, it's not as if we're talking about fistfights. We're talking about possible nuclear war. And it's just a kind of genocidal idea to threaten a small country with fire and fury. These were nuclear. He was talking about nuclear war, not just conventional war, and actually used a phrase that's very similar to what Harry Truman used in the hours after Hiroshima was hit by an atomic bomb and before Nagasaki was hit, he said basically the same words to the effect that the world has never seen the kind of fire and ruin that's going to descend on on Japan. And to evoke that with another Asian country is just absolutely reprehensible. One of the things that you do in talking about the history, going back to the very beginning, which is to sort of do a point-counterpoint about, you know, we were supporting the stable democracy in the South. They were the communist from the North. But if, maybe you could go back a little bit over that war. And I'm sure that our listeners may not know that uh, South Korea was ruled by dictatorships well until the 80s. There was a long history of worker and student uprisings that were crushed. And so could you put that into some kind of perspective and, and look at the U.S.? role? Many people, in fact, I've had people uh, email me and say, oh, Cummings, I suppose what you really want is for Kim Jong-un to rule over South Korea, a vibrant democracy. And of course, that isn't what I want. But that also was not the case at all 72 years ago when Korea was liberated from Japanese rule only to be divided a couple of days later by thoughtless American actions led by Dean Rusk, uh, later Secretary of State, and John J. McCloy, uh, later High Commissioner of Germany, the U.S. unilaterally divided Korea and supported dictators in the South for the next 40 years, essentially from 1948, when the first uh, Republic of Korea was established, to uh, 1988, when they finally held a direct uh, presidential election. And throughout this, a growing and, and ultimately very strong civil society fought against these dictators, and in the 80s uh, fought against American power, which they thought was, and they were right, was supporting the dictators. So for 40 years, North Korea really saw itself as the legitimate part of Korea, even though it, of course, was a communist dictatorship. But its leaders had fought the Japanese, whereas most South Korean leaders that we supported had collaborated with the Japanese, particularly in the police and military. But it's also true that 
I mean, I've been working on Korea my entire career, mm. but recent research and the particularly the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that operated in South Korea uh, under uh, the Kim Dae-jung and Nomu Hyun governments from 1998 to 2008 uncovered evidence of massacres on a truly horrific scale uh, where the Syngman Rhee regime in the 1940s and during the Korean War just engaged in wholesale slaughter against uh, anyone they called a leftist or a communist. And it, it now appears that upwards of 500,000 people were slaughtered uh, in these uh, political murders. So this, again, is what North Korea has been dealing with. It itself is a brutal and vicious regime, but it does not have that kind of blood on its hands. It does have the famine in the late 1990s right. where hundreds of thousands of people died, and that was inexcusable, but it also came in the wake of 40% of the arable land of North Korea being wiped out in floods. So you're talking about a truly terrible history, whether it's South Korea or North Korea, and so many innocent people have died because of the division of Korea, the Korean War, and the endless animosity. And so for Trump to say what he's been saying for the last week is just to pour gasoline on a fire and, and to pour terrible, terrible hurt uh, into people who, who have suffered mightily for the last 70-odd years. If he had any guts and, you know, was a mensch-like character, he would <laughs> fly to North Korea and make peace with Kim Jong-un. He once said he would like to meet him. He said he was a smart cookie. Yeah. He'd like to have a hamburger with him. He could uh, break through all this terrible tension right now and actually do something good being the maverick that he is rather than leading us into uh, what could be a terrible conflict. Well, Bruce Cummings, one of the things you also say in your article in the London Review is that we have this image of this hardline communist cult of the personality state, but you say it's hardly a communist country. It's much more a garrison state. But you've also been there several times. And I know uh, you mentioned that you were in Pyongyang, I think, first in the 80s. And I just wondered if you had any sense, is this opposition to the U.S., which is easily verifiable, used to galvanize support for the regime in North Korea? Or did you encounter any ability of anyone to sort of say, you know, get any idea of what they thought? I was first in North Korea in 1981, and uh, I was supposed to be visiting in early September, you know, a few weeks from now, but can't go because the State Department has blocked mm -hmm. the passage of Americans to North Korea. Whether I would go in 1981 or 2017, I would be guided around by people. I would have no opportunity to speak to ordinary Koreans. And that's the simple fact of life that is true about North Korea and always has been true about North Korea. Nonetheless, I have to say that the people I did interact with, guides and officials and academic counterparts and so on, were extremely kind and warm-hearted people. They bore no apparent hostility toward me as an American. And the most amazing thing I think that I came out of North Korea with each time I visit is that on the one hand, you have a highly authoritarian regime that can control almost every aspect of people's lives. On the other hand, North Koreans are ordinary human beings, and you see them having fun, uh, dancing, going out to a beer hall, getting drunk at a restaurant. This is 
ordinary life in North Korea, and that's one of the hardest things to communicate. And it was somewhat of a surprise to me uh, when I first went there that, you know, these are just ordinary human beings that you encounter. They have to put up with and pay their dues to the particular kind of politics that you have in North Korea. But they're not people with evil in their hearts. They don't really hate Americans. And it's just very unfortunate that we haven't been able to find a way to uh, normalize diplomatic relations with North Korea and uh, pursue a kind of reconciliation, which South Korea pursued very diligently from 1998 to 2008 with quite good success. One of the things that you talk about in your article that's going to be published in The Guardian, Bruce Cummings, is that there's this attitude that there's been a long history. It's not just, you know, Trump, but it was Bush and it was Clinton before who've had this kind of nuclear bluster uh, rhetoric against North Korea. But there seems to be a kind of exterminationist attitude. I wondered, is this because the war really ended in a kind of stalemate and they want to finish the war? Or is this a sense that they want to obliterate the regime, that they imagine that once the border is, you know, is open, that everyone will flock south and it'll be the end of it? How do you read what's behind what's going on? Well, what I meant by exterminationist is is actually something, a very cogent piece that Japan scholar Richard Muneer wrote about the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, saying they were exterminist in two senses. One, every man, woman, and child uh, within a radius uh, of a certain uh, number of miles was either completely incinerated or died later on because of radiation and burns. There was no discernment whatsoever, just any human being in the way was killed. And the second meaning of extermination is is that we're now, and we have been in a situation since uh, the late 1950s, where if you have a nuclear war, it may lead to nuclear winter, even a, a regional nuclear war, say, between India and Pakistan, could lead to uh, a couple of years of nuclear winter and millions of people around the world dying. Uh, So to play around with nuclear war the way that Trump is doing is just utterly reprehensible and terrible. There's a lot of people who are really nervous right now and think that, you know, because Trump is unpredictable and he's doubling down on this tough language, maybe to show himself how tough he is, that there could be some kind of accident and it would not only, you know, perhaps have an attack here or on Guam, but terrible consequences for South Korea and and further afield. Well, South Korea has not been consulted by Donald Trump and uh, their newspapers are full of worry that uh, a war could start without any consultation, without uh, South Korea being notified of what the U.S. might do or the U.S. goading uh, North Korea to do something. Uh, We have not only 30,000 troops in South Korea, but there are probably, I saw an estimate today, of about 150,000 Americans living in South Korea. But, of course, 50 million Koreans live there as well. And 25 million of them are in Seoul or the greater Seoul area and vulnerable to North Korean conventional weapons. So it's a kind of madness for Trump to go on acting as if the conflict is between him and Kim Jong-un rather than a conflict where he and the North Koreans are making vulnerable South Korea and Japan, not to mention Guam, all of 
about 200 million people roughly within the range of North Korea's uh, medium-range missiles. So I don't understand myself the rationality behind Trump's actions, and that's why I think, as you just suggested, he's like a a bully in a schoolyard uh, playing with fire. Well, let's just hope that saner voices prevail, and I want to thank you for adding yours to this mix, but especially for injecting a sense of history so that we can understand where this came from. And I should just add, even in the New York Times Today letter section, there's a very good letter that reminds people that we bombed the North during the war and essentially carpet bombed it. This is all a perspective that one should hold, and it would be nice if the president did too. But I want to thank you for your insights. And can we call on you again as this uh, sure. crisis Thank continues. you very much, Susie. Thank you so nice much. To you. Nice to talk to you, too. And I've been speaking with Bruce Cummings. He teaches at the University of Chicago. He's the author of The Korean War. He has an article in the London Review of Books called A Murderous History of Korea that will really give you, you know, the background on this. And he'll have an op-ed in The Guardian in the coming days, A Tale Told by an Idiot. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. Mm-hmm.